We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Gosh dang, Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo, it feels different when we do it in studio, girl. In studio, it's so weird. Cool. It's like I've come home again. It's not weird. It's comfortable. It's comfortable. It's, it's, it's like a vacation home now. It is. Kinda, yeah. You know? It's like this is our second home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But I like the lives. I miss our I miss our people. Yeah. I miss I, our people. I miss our people. We're looking forward to seeing you guys. It's good to be back in studio, but I am looking forward to all the live shows these next few weeks. And I'd like I'd like to say, if you're a listener out there who has been to a live show and you can't make these ones, make sure you tell your friends. But also if you're a listener out there with venue connections in other Midwest cities, let's talk because Let we are actively seeking those opportunities to bring Midwest murder live to a city near you. And we're not hard to find. No, we've got some big things on the books. Yeah. Come find us. We, 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 want, we want to make those connections. And I'd like to give a big thanks to everyone who takes the time out of their busy life to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. The comments and the feedback that you guys give us, that, that support means a lot. It really is fuel in our tanks. And, 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 and I love it. I love to hear it, bad or good. I think, I, I think it all helps, Don. I'm kind of curious, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, BM Riedel, so B-M-R-E-A-D-E-L, gave us five stars. I couldn't finish it. I recently started listening to Midwest Murder Podcast and I'm loving it. It's like a binging pleasure for me until I got to episode 23 about Bar Jonah in Great Falls, Montana. I'm an avid reader and horror on tr- horror or true crime has often been in my repertoire. Anne Rule, Stephen King, Dean Arkunitz, often been in my to read pile. But as I listened to this episode, I truly could not finish the last 15 minutes. It was horrific. A book, if any genre, has to be terrible for me not to finish it. And I'm disappointed in myself that simply had to turn this episode off. I was overcome by it. My heart hurt for you as Jonah read the story. I can't imagine the emotions as you researched it. I love your voices as you read, your banter, and that so often you bring North Dakota history alive in your podcast. Please continue to do so. Maybe one day I can hear the last 15 minutes of episode 23. Thank you. Wow. That one is that that one comes up time and time again. Every show that we do, it comes up. It honestly does. And uh I don't think I, I, I don't think I'll ever forget that recording. Ever. This review really hit the nail on the head. It was emotional and it was tough. And and thanks for getting through most of it. And that's uh, and, and I'll give her a shout out too. It's at BM Riedel on Twitter. So if you want to check this individual out, that's their Twitter handle. And thanks for taking the time to to share that heartfelt review yeah, with us. Thank you. Uh, Jerry Shorty, one star. I tried. They talk too much. I really just want to hear the case. Boom. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for your time. <laughs> thanks, 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 for, thanks. Thanks for stopping us a, by. Thanks for giving us a shot. Yeah. You know, you I, get a um, B for effort. Yeah. It, 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 I do have to giggle every time when everybody's like, they talk too much. It is a podcast. It is a podcast. And we are literally talking through the entire thing. We are, you know, so I was, I was like to, if we do talk too much, how do you mean? Like, do you well, want, just brown noise. Listen, I mean, some people know. do not want any personality or individual sure. and individual and conversation I, in their podcast. And I'm not. I am not yeah. shaming anybody no, for no, that no, because we all have different. We all have different likes. You know. I. Um, it just. It just always makes me giggle. Different. Different folks. Different strokes. That's what they say. You can now get merch of Midwest Murder on tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. You can find that link on our socials. You can also choose to financially support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. And stay tuned with Midwest Murder events and happenings by following following us. Following. Following us. (laughs) I don't even know what I said there, but all of our events and happenings by following us 
on Facebook and Instagram. And that's, again, it's Midwest Murder Live on Eventbrite when you're looking for those events and you want to come check out a show in a city near you. Yeah, like that, what he said. Today on Midwest Murder, we're heading back to 1997. It was the year Madeleine Albright is sworn in as the first female Secretary of State in United States history. I love Madeleine Albright. Read about her brooches. It's a big deal. Some, read about her brooches. Her brooches mean different things. Anyway. Oh, I remember seeing yeah. like a meme about that or something one time. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's super cool. In 1997, the Nintendo 64 was released for the retail price of $169.99. Hey, also, I want to go back to Madeleine Albright real quick. I want to start wearing, can we bring brooches back? Do it. Like how freaking cool are those things? Nobody, anyway. Don, make the statement. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Internet Explorer version four was the primary web browser. Nobody, uh, bye. (laughs) They they don't even call it that anymore. No, it's like, yeah, anyway. The notorious B.I.G. was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting. Biggie, biggie, biggie. Can't Can't you see? see. Mike Tyson bites Evander Holyfield's ear during a match and is suspended from boxing. And if you guys out there, if you remember where you were at when that happened, Good for you, because I remember exactly I remember. where I was at. And then we I also I also remember the jokes on on Saturday Night Live later too. Yeah. Like that was there would have been really good memes about that. Yeah. So it's too bad memes didn't exist back then. Yeah. A civil jury panel fa- finds OJ Simpson guilty. The civil panel. The civil panel. That was so confu- yeah. right. That was so confusing to me as a kid, as a yeah. teenager. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? I, I did not understand how right. that worked he was, at all. It was, he was so acquitted, strange. But yet he's still guilty on the civil side. I know. It, I couldn't wrap my brain around it. Yeah. Tiger Woods at the ripe young age of 21 years old became the youngest ever golfer to win the masters. 97. Go Tiger. Mother Teresa dies in Calcutta. Major films of the year included Men in Black, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, Liar Liar, and Air Force One. Highlights of popular music, and these are all Adon's favorite know, songs. But if you would like me to recite anybody, you just let me anybody. know. Drop me a line. Um, do people still say that? Um, let me know if you would like me to recite Liar Liar from start to finish. I still could. I dare somebody to put Don on the spot at one of our live shows with that. Okay, <laughs> I, will, I, I dare start, you out there. And you better be ready because you don't know what you're chewing off here. So. Save it for the Q&A. <laughs> Highlights of popular music include Don's personal greatest hit lits. Hit, hit, hit lit. What is, what is up with me today? Hit <laughs> lits. All of Don's finest hit lits. Uh, her greatest hits album, personal favorites, 1997 popular music. Hanson released Mbop, Aqua's hit song Barbie Girl, and the Puff Daddy and Faith Evans collab, I'll Be Missing You, which Puff wrote in honor of Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Oh, the Notorious okay. D.I.G. On. He didn't and really write it. He borrowed most of it from Sting. Come on. Who can forget <laughs> the Marcy Playground hit, <gasps> Sex, sex and, and Candy. Candy. I smell Sex and Candy. It's the number one rock song yeah. of the year. I That one actually was on my top list. Like, I loved Sex and Candy. The Barbie song. Girl and Mbop weren't there? I, I would say Mbop isn't, but um, Barbie Girl, I might know that one too. My little cousin yeah. was so obsessed with Mbop. It, it, yeah. it was frustrating. I, they're our age. Like, they're as old as we are. Yeah. They're not perpetually 14. <laughs> It's weird. Anyway. Do you think it's weird performing that song as a 40 year old man? <laughs> it's got to feel weird. <laughs> it's got to feel weird. It's got to be bizarre. I know. And, right. and really who still wants to hear it, but that's cool. 97, lots of highlights. While the Midwest is often referred to as flyover country, there is one undeniable benefit Midwesterners, particularly in the North, willfully boast of. Summertime, baby. It's hot. When the days are long. The nights are warm, the lakes are beautiful, and the sunsets are spectacular. Sure, summer only lasts for approximately three months if we're lucky, but it's a damn good three months, especially because regional and local governments are kindly fixing all the public roads and potholes, which makes traveling to see those beautiful lakes and sunsets really easy. That was sarcasm. And that covers two of our three favorite conversation topics in the Midwest, the weather and road construction. What's the third? Anybody's <laughs> guess. I was going to say hot dish. Maybe, hot dish maybe. or perhaps murder. The twins. We're here. Talking about the twins. Right. Yeah. Something that isn't discussed enough, if ever, the increased crime rates that come with long, hot summer months. Some researchers suggest longer daylight hours contribute to the rise in crime. 
Longer daylight hours encourage people to stay outside and away from their homes for greater periods of time, increasing the amount of public foot traffic. Higher foot traffic creates more opportunity for crimes to occur. Students out of school for the summer with more free time on their hands also contribute to both higher public foot traffic and crime. And there is reason to believe the rise in temperature causes an increase in irritability and aggressiveness, which could also cause a rise in violent crimes. And Don, let me tell you, I can confirm I am way more irritable when I'm hot and bothered. When you're freezing ass cold, it just sucks. It can be irritating, but nothing like being sweaty and thirsty and hot and angry. And I know there are other meanings of hot and bothered. I was going to say, okay, you knew exactly where I was going. Right. Yeah. yeah, Well, you know. Way more irritable when I'm hot. Oh my gosh. I'm a jerk. If you, and if you, if I'm hot and hungry, oh man. Just look out. You better, you better move. Overall, higher temperatures Longer daylight hours and more foot traffic create an increase in interaction between people, which then provides more opportunity for crime. We also consume drugs and alcohol at considerably higher rates in the summer. Although studies are not conclusive enough to show exactly how warmer temperatures cause an increase in crime, researchers agree there is a correlation. When temperatures rise, so do property crimes. And so does your chance of being a victim. Well, and if we're cooped up all winter long, right? You know, it's, it's, we're going to just come out with uh, hands swinging. I was going to say guns a blazing. Every, every single cliche is about violence. I can't even come up with a good one. Anyway, they're all there. It's not, it's anyway, not Florida. We're, it's not Florida. We're, we're summer all time. We're ready baby. to just get out of the cold and, and get into the warm air. Yes. Tragically, for one resident of Spring Lake Park, Minnesota, this combination of too much free time for students, long summer nights, drugs, alcohol, and willful opportunistic property crime became fatal. 32-year-old Robert Anderson was found dead by his best friend at 9.30 p.m. on August 20th, 1997. After repeated phone calls with no answer, Robert Anderson's friend came to check on him. When nobody answered the door to Robert's trailer, but the dog could be heard barking like crazy on the inside, he knew something was wrong. Somehow, he managed to get a look inside, sadly discovering the body of his best friend. He immediately ran to a neighboring trailer and called 911. It didn't take long for officers to arrive, secure the scene, and initiate their investigation. Once inside the home, investigators found Robert Anderson lying face down in a pool of his own blood. He was partially covered by a blanket. His brave little dog, Squishy, stood vigilantly next to Robert's body, barking, protecting his person. Oh, that makes me sad. Squishy the poodle whimpered as it was removed from the scene. The poor animal had a massive bruise across its abdomen. Why would you tell this part of the story? Oh my gosh. It's part of the story. No, I don't want to hear it. I can't. Although Squishy managed to survive the attack that claimed his owner's life, nobody adopted the dog and he was eventually (laughs) euthanized just a few months later. Jonah! Again, I know we're dealing with loss of human life as well, but it's just, you know, when you, when you bring in animals, it's just another level. It's really sad. Robert Anderson's body was a mass of bruises and stab wounds. The injuries covering his body told their own violent story. He was beaten, stomped, bludgeoned, and stabbed. Robert Anderson was stomped so hard in the back, there was a clear evident shoe print bruise on his skin consistent with athletic shoe designs probably a nike this is not just a crime of opportunity with property crime oh my gosh that is like beaten stomped bludgeoned stabbed like that's that's a lot next to robert anderson's body police found several weapons a broken rifle used to pummel Robert Anderson with so much force the butt of the gun broke off, the bloodied handle of a steak knife, the blade broke off inside Anderson's body, blood splatter along with 
Two sets of bloody footprints, athletic tread design. One was similar to the bruise print found on Robert Anderson's back. Anderson's blood was found on the couch, under the counter, along the walls, even on the ceiling. He was forcibly struck over and over again dozens of times. The violent swinging of fists, feet, and weapons flung blood spatter everywhere around his body. There were no defensive wounds found on his five foot nine, 118 pound frame. However, this situation played out, it seemed pretty clear Anderson never stood a chance. Although there were no signs of a break in, the trailer was ransacked and in complete disarray. Some of the mess was later explained as consistent with how Robert lived. However, Robert Anderson's pockets were turned out, drawers were pulled open and emptied, electronics, including a stereo, television, VCR, and video games were missing, but the killers didn't leave any fingerprints behind. According to friends, family, and neighbors, Robert Anderson did not have enemies. He was known as a kind, helpful and gentle man who occasionally hosted parties that never got too loud. His parents died just a few years prior, which was when Anderson moved to the trailer at 1500 Ballantine Lane. Investigators dug around for leads. Anderson had no criminal record and worked full-time as a janitor. When police canvassed the neighborhood, one witness came forward. She said she heard yelling and a dog yelping, sometime before sunrise. The witness statement was consistent with the coroner's time of death, which placed Robert Anderson's death at some time between 4 and 7 a.m. Other findings from the medical examiner, Robert Anderson had seven broken ribs and over seven ounces of blood in his stomach. The examiner estimated it would take approximately 15 to 20 minutes to swallow that much blood. Robert Anderson wasn't beaten to death quickly. He suffered at least that long, probably longer. Oh my gosh, that is awful. That poor guy. Wow. That was the extent of clues investigators had to go on. A pair of bloody shoe prints and an approximate time. This mystery, however, wouldn't take long to unravel itself, for the greed and stupidity that led to this murder didn't end with Robert Anderson's life. I'm sure this goes without saying. Robert Anderson's murder set everyone in the neighborhood on edge. Things in the trailer court felt a little less friendly, a lot less safe, and people responded with hypervigilance. Watchful eyes were everywhere, And six days after the murder, police received a 911 call. Someone was breaking into the home of Robert Anderson, and the trailer was still posted as a crime scene. The arriving officer immediately noticed a man carrying a chair from Anderson's trailer and into the mobile home next door. I'd say the officer gave chase right here, but he didn't have to. He simply followed the chair thief inside where he found what appeared to be half a dozen shit-ass teenagers who admitted they were peeking into Anderson's home. There was some initial effort to deny anything was taken, but Don, you can imagine how well that went over when the cop came inside that house. Uh, Well, I'm sure, uh, you know, the chair just walking itself over really, I mean, had nothing to do with it. Yeah, nothing. Your, your crime scene tampering, there's minors, stolen property. All six men were arrested and taken to the station. That was when the officer noticed two of them had brand new shoes. 20-year-old Stephen Dean, owner of the mobile home where they were all arrested, and 17-year-old Ryan Michael Peterson. The new shoes sent alarm bells ringing for police and, as a result, officers pressed the men in custody for more information. This resulted in statements from Stephen Dean, as well as 18-year-old Anthony Moses and Ryan Peterson and everyone else present. During this initial arrest, police only got 
pieces of the story in statements. And it was enough to make these men prime suspects. But at that point, the DA didn't feel like they had enough evidence to press any murder charges. When investigators took samples from these guys, no hair, blood, or fibers matched anything found at the murder scene. Police had no witnesses and nothing to physically connect any of these men. From what I can tell, Dean was found with stolen property at his house, which obviously didn't look great for him, but there was at least initially denial of any involvement. But one of those six had something to say that tipped people off a little bit, but it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. And I mean, you can, obviously, the prosecuting attorney or whatever, the state's attorney, they're they're not going to, they need something. You know, and just because you've stolen something, you're a shitbag, but it doesn't mean... You're a murderer, yet. right? No you witness, yeah. no murder weapon. Uh, in, in terms of like, 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 like that connects you. No fingerprints. Right. right. Maybe one of these six. Frustrating. Is, one I of mean, these six might be like, well, I think one of my friends might have did this. Right, but that's not enough. But that's not. That's nothing. Did you see it? No. Do you know for a fact? No. no. So that's. So you can't. That's you not. You don't have works. much. Some some cases have been prosecuted on less. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> but. So they were all arrested and then let go. But investigators kept working the case on them. A reward of $5,000 was offered to anyone with information related to the murder of Robert Anderson. It wasn't until May 18th, 1998, eight months later, that murder indictments were released by a grand jury charging Stephen Dean and Ryan Peterson with three counts each of first-degree murder. Since grand jury proceedings are private, the additional evidence leading to the indictment was unclear. Investigators did reveal that both suspects told mutual friends details of the killing that only the murderers would know. Stephen Dean was arrested immediately and held on a $1 million bond. Peterson was on the lam for a few days before turning himself in. Well, so clearly something changed. I mean, they obviously got something. If they can bring it before a grand jury eight months later, you know, time sucks, but still. Something that went in my mind is that Ryan Peterson was 17 when he was arrested at the end of August. So that means, presumably, he was under investigation while completing his senior year of high school. So imagine being in high school and there's these rumors of you being connected to a killing was he going though? I mean, was he? Was I don't he know for I don't know student? for sure, but he was he was an active high school student for okay. sure. Did he okay. go following that oh, August sure. arrest? I yeah. I don't know, but I feel like he I feel like he probably did. So this didn't come out at trial. This didn't come out until trial. But I did learn that following that initial arrest, Dean's home was searched, and investigators conducted luminol tests. Two locations tested positive for blood and had a shoe print pattern that was consistent with the bloody footprints left behind at the murder scene. Before this went to trial, Stephen Dean pleaded guilty to burglary and second-degree intentional homicide. He was given a 25-year sentence with an eight-year minimum followed by intense supervised probation. Stephen Dean, now 21 years old, became one of two key witnesses to testify against Ryan Peterson. The other was Anthony Moses. According to Stephen Dean's story, on August 19, 1997, Stephen Dean threw a party at his house for the 18th birthday of Anthony Moses. At one point in the evening, Robert Anderson was at the party having drinks, hanging out with everybody. But eventually the party ended when the birthday boy, Anthony Moses, left. Then it was just Stephen Dean, Joe Brown, and Ryan Peterson. It was sometime between 12 and 1 a.m. But these guys weren't ready to stop. Dean and Peterson wanted to smoke weed, according to Dean. His neighbor, Robert Anderson, would have some. So the three men wandered over to Anderson's house and their little party continued. Anderson let them in as soon as he recognized Stephen Dean. After that, they had a pretty chill time smoking weed, drinking, talking, and hanging out in Anderson's living room. 
In what were the final hours of his life, Robert Anderson shared what he had with his killers in his own living room. It seemed like a pretty good summer evening to share a few laughs, a few drinks, and a puff with your neighbors. And these men accepted his generosity, even took advantage of it, stealing Subway sandwiches from the fridge while Anderson wasn't paying attention. It was just too easy. After a while, Joe, Dean, and Peterson all left. Joe called it a night, got in his car, and departed. Peterson and Dean went back to Dean's house to watch TV. You know, I really wish I had a bigger TV. When you think about it, it'd be pretty easy to steal Bob's TV. According to Dean, Ryan Peterson was into his idea. And the more Dean talked about stealing from Anderson, the more excited they got, the bigger their plan became. First, it was just the TV. But why stop there? We can take all Bob's shit. He has a VCR, a stereo, probably some money. He can't stop us. And if he tries, we'll knock him the fuck out. We'll kill him if I have to. It's some property. It's, it's a TV and a VCR. They don't even make VCRs anymore, buddy. And you're willing to end someone's life over... Oh, man. Some electronics. Some electronics. After he smoked weed with you and, sh- and shared yeah. his stuff. He gave, you, he gave you his weed and now you're just ready to take his entire life, literally. Cool. Stand-up guy. What began as an excitement over property theft and burglary slowly built its way to a willful desire for violence. Dean covered his hands with socks. Peterson wrapped his hands with a t-shirt and at around 2.30 or 3 in the morning, they returned to the home of Robert Anderson. Peterson and Dean barged in without knocking. Squishy started barking. A surprised Anderson got up from the couch. What are you doing here? Uh, can we get some pop? Asked Ryan Peterson. When Anderson turned to get his pop, Peterson swung on him with a bottle, but the bottle slipped out of his t-shirt-covered hand and went flying into the wall. Anderson was afraid. He looked at Dean and Peterson, told them to take the pop and get out of his house as he sat back down on the couch. Instead of leaving, Dean and Peterson sat directly next to Anderson on the couch, crowding around him and smashing Anderson in between them. The two men, both athletes, were hulking brutes compared to Anderson. Dean stood 6'3 and weighed 210 pounds. Peterson was 5'9", 190. And, and, and Robert Anderson was 5'8", 120 pounds. I, I mean... The petite frame of Robert Anderson crumpled as Ryan Peterson began smashing the little man with elbows. Thud, thud, thud. The blows rained down on Anderson. Peterson threw him violently to the floor, smashing Anderson's face to the ground, pinning him down with a knee. Anderson squirmed and made noises, but it didn't last long. Peterson punched Anderson in the face several times before getting up and kicking Anderson in the head until he was unconscious. With Anderson incapacitated, Dean and Peterson ransacked his house looking for anything valuable to steal. This is making me very uncomfortable. Like this one, this is just pure greed and dumb. Like they're, they're, they're putting value over obsolete electronics over his life, over a human being's life. For sure. Or there might be more to it. Oh boy. Okay. This is all according to Dean's story. Oh, Reminder, this boy. is all according to Stephen Dean. And you're, but you're still not entirely wrong and it is uncomfortable and it is evil. I know, right? Yeah. Anderson eventually regained consciousness while Dean was searching the back bedroom. Peterson continued kicking Anderson in the ribs and face. When that wasn't enough, Peterson demanded Dean's help, and Dean held Anderson's legs while Peterson stomped and jumped on Anderson's head until he was unconscious again. Now we have to kill him, or we'll both be told on. Dean found a rifle in Anderson's home, 
But he didn't want to shoot the man. Peterson took the weapon and started hitting Anderson again and again. Peterson hit Robert Anderson in the stomach, in the ribs, and finally a strike that landed with such force it not only broke the butt of the gun off the rifle, it cracked Robert Anderson's skull, sending blood splatter across Peterson's shirt and face. Dean was sickened at the sight of blood and began vomiting. He heard the dog yelp and turned around just in time to see Squishy hit the wall and run off. Now taking orders from a bloodthirsty Peterson, Dean was instructed to continue searching Anderson's house for valuables. He found $400 between two books in a closet. As Peterson walked through Anderson's home looking for more money and touching various items, Dean followed behind him, wiping Anderson's fingerprints off of everything. When the frantic search was over, Peterson wanted to ensure Anderson was dead. Using a knife he found in the house, Peterson stabbed Anderson in the body a few times. While that dirty work was nearing completion, Dean hauled their loot over to his house, a TV, VCR, stereo, and some video games. Dean returned to Anderson's house just in time to witness Peterson stab Anderson in the throat. Ryan Peterson showed off the knife handle, telling Dean, it broke while I was stabbing him. By now, it was a little before sunrise, around 5 or 6 in the morning. Dean and Peterson returned to Dean's mobile home. Both men were in shock. But that didn't stop them from attempting to clean up their savagery. Peterson washed the blood from his hands and face and changed out of his blood-spattered clothes while Dean paged Anthony Moses. In fact, Stephen Dean paged Anthony Moses numerous times. They put Peterson's clothes, the white t-shirt and socks they wore on their hands, Dean's socks, and their shoes in a garbage bag. Then they waited. Minutes ticked away like an eternity as Dean and Peterson waited for Moses to call them back. Finally, Dean's phone rang. It had to be Moses. Nobody else would be calling so early in the morning. When Stephen Dean answered the phone, he spoke in a hushed and frightened voice. We killed my neighbor. We killed Bob Anderson. We need your help getting rid of the shit we stole. During the phone conversation with Dean, Moses heard Ryan Peterson in the background saying, Get me some clothes, Steve, in a loud and hurried voice. Then Dean said, I need to get out of my clothes, and abruptly hung up the phone. Anthony Moses, whose 18-year-old birthday party it was just the night before, was barely awake, mildly hungover, and in total disbelief as to what Stephen Dean just told him. Moses called back, and this time Ryan Peterson answered the phone. Moses asked him, Did you guys really do it? And Peterson responded, Yeah, the neighbor is dead. They talked a little longer, and Peterson said, I gotta get out of these clothes, and hung up. After talking with Moses, Peterson and Dean put the bag of clothes in Dean's car and went out for breakfast. And I mean, who doesn't eat breakfast after a long night of partying and murder? Once their bellies were full, the killers ran some errands to waste time while waiting for the mall to open. Using the stolen money, Dean and Anderson each bought a new pair of shoes. Upon returning to Dean's house, they found Moses and another friend, Alexander Lundin, waiting for them. Moses asked Dean and Peterson if they really did it. Take a look in that bag in my back seat, Dean told him. Moses peered inside to see the bloody clothes and shoes. According to Alex Lundin, Stephen Dean was really excited to tell him how he, quote, whacked Anderson. Dean paced around and made kicking and punching motions with his hands and feet while he described the beating he put on Anderson. Alex Lundin noticed that while Dean told the vicious story, Peterson was just kind of quiet and didn't confirm or deny anything Dean said. Peterson held his head down most of the time and occasionally made some affirmative sounds. Then, as friends do, Anthony Moses offered to dispose of the bloody evidence. But only if he could have Peterson's old murder shoes. To where? Yes. Yep, he, want, he, he figured those were a nicer pair of shoes than he had and he would like to have them. 
Okay. Okay. I'll get rid of this bloody murder evidence if I can have your bloody murder but I can, shoes. But I'd like your shoes. Yeah. That you kill the guy in. Okay. After their little post-murder planning session and follow-up meeting, Moses and Lundin left with the evidence and drove to a nearby lake. Moses had to dig in the bag for the shoes. He saw the blood-splattered t-shirt, a couple pairs of pants, and two pairs of shoes. He grabbed Peterson's old shoes to try them on, but the shoes didn't fit. However, he did take time to note their dotted tread pattern before eventually throwing all of the evidence into a dumpster. He didn't want Dean's shoes? Yep, that was where London, those, no, those no, were. He didn't want, he, he didn't want the didn't, other kid's shoes. He wanted Peterson's he shoes. He wanted Peterson's shoes. I want okay. He, he wanted Peterson's shoes and happened to note their dotted tread. They didn't fit, so he threw them in the dumpster. That's the gist of what happened, according to Anthony Moses and Stephen Dean. Ryan Peterson's version of Robert Anderson's murder played out much differently from Stephen Dean's. According to Peterson, he and Stephen Dean never left Robert Anderson's house. Joe Brown left after a while, but Dean and Peterson stayed. and They kept partying with Anderson. At some point, an argument broke out between Stephen Dean and Robert Anderson. Evidently, Anderson didn't like the previous occupants of Stephen Dean's mobile home, and he said some not-so-nice things about them. Well, it turns out the former residents were none other than Stephen Dean's brother and his friend. The argument escalated. Stephen Dean kicked Anderson's dog, Squishy, and when Anderson stepped up to defend his animal, Stephen Dean shoved the man hard. Robert Anderson retreated to the back of his mobile home. A few moments later, Anderson returned to the living room with a rifle and told Dean to get the hell out. Unafraid of the smaller man, Dean grabbed the gun, wrestled Anderson into a headlock, and punched him in the face as Anderson struggled to get away. The two fell to the floor, and Dean repeatedly kicked Anderson. Peterson was scared. He tried to get Dean's attention by shouting, Let's go! and hitting the wall. But Dean continued kicking Anderson. When Dean finally stopped kicking Anderson... He picked the rifle up and relentlessly smashed Anderson with it until the gun broke. A terrified Peterson started hyperventilating and ran outside to hide in a shed. After some time, Peterson returned to Dean's mobile home where he found Dean on the phone with a VCR next to him. What did you do? Peterson asked him. I killed Bob, Dean told him. Ryan Peterson just wanted out. Take me home. Please just take me home. He was afraid, but there was no one for Peterson to call. He was stranded with the murderer. Eventually, Dean agreed to take Peterson home, but instead, they stopped for breakfast, went to Dean's father's house and Dean's brother's workplace, and then finally drove to a mall where Dean bought them both new shoes. Instead of taking Peterson home at that time, they returned to Dean's house and found Moses and Lundin waiting for them. According to Ryan Peterson, there was never any conversation about robbing Anderson. He didn't take anything from Anderson's home and never had any intention to steal. Peterson claimed that he never covered his hands, never changed clothes, and did not stab Anderson or take any part in his murder. Anthony Moses also took the stand for the prosecution and, in his own words considered Peterson and Dean to be his best friends. Moses testified that he spoke with both Peterson and Dean individually about the murder. The testimony of Anthony Moses predominantly matched the story of Stephen Dean. Moses alleges that he spoke to Peterson alone on August 22nd, the day after the murders. When Moses asked Peterson what happened, Peterson told him the same story as Dean, but with two exceptions. According to Moses, Peterson told him that Dean kicked Anderson too, but Peterson made no mention of stabbing Anderson. So we have two divergent stories here. Completely different. They couldn't be more different. Thoughts. I would, I initially, 
I, I think the second story, the Peterson story, is a little more believable, but my gut says it's the other way. That it was that they were just greedy. That's what I think. That's my that's my gut feeling without knowing any other details. Of course. You know, and the fact that, you know, Moses and Moses and Dean's stories, if they predominantly match, if they match well. But everything Moses knows is secondhand too, though. Moses is alleging sure. this. Well, they both told me this story. Well, but but if but then also at the end though, you know, when when he's there. And he implicates himself just enough. I mean, getting right. rid of the getting rid of the stuff. I, I mean, it's just it's a he said he said thing. I don't know. Before we get to the jury's decision, I want to share a few details I learned about Dean Peterson and Anthony Moses. This information came from an interview with a man by the name of Jason Foffler. Jason went to high school with these guys. In fact, Jason was best friends with Ryan Peterson and Ryan's brother Jimmy. They played sports together, had sleepovers, all those things do through middle and high school until Ryan's family moved and they didn't really hang out as much heading into 1996. Their arrest was the talk of the school that whole year. Jason remembers learning of it during two-a-days at football practice. It was all anyone could talk about. If police wanted information, there was no lack of it being passed around as rumors and half-truths at St. Anthony High. Jason went to St. Anthony High Village High School. It's a very small school. His graduating class, he said, was about 50 people. When he was a freshman, Stephen Dean was a senior, and Dean was a high school legend. Dean was popular throughout the area and well-known for being the small school quarterback who led his team to victories over many of the larger, more competitive schools in their division. Of course, so protected by the Friday Night Lights. And granted, when these murders occur, Dean is several years removed from this. I don't think it matters. So how was it that Dean, who was a few years older than some of these other guys, was hanging out with a bunch of teenagers? Football was the main connecting point, and it was Alex Lundeen, also a former St. Anthony High School player that moved to Spring Lake Park for more sports opportunities, who was the link between them all. Dean also occasionally came to their football games. Dean... Moses and Lundin were all the St. Anthony's boys. Sure, they were all friends, but Peterson didn't have the mutually shared history of the other men. If Dean, Moses, Lundin, and Peterson were a group of four friends, Peterson was friend number four, and the other three were a much closer interior group. Moses wasn't a jock like the rest of these guys. He was just, quote, cool as fuck, liked to party, and was occasionally known for being a weed dealer. Jason said Dean and Moses had a reputation for partying. Dean bought that trailer because he wanted to be Mr. Party Guy. They all thought they were going to be these dealers. There was little doubt in Jason's mind that Steve Dean was the alpha male decision maker of this group. Okay, so remind me. I, I just want to make sure that I'm. I'm. So the the outsider, right? Is the outsider is Peterson, right? Conceivably. Okay, so and he's the one that Stephen Dean and, and Moses are testifying against. Okay, I just wanted to make sure that Absolutely. I was that I was on the right right track. You're, there. you're connecting the dots, girl. I am. I am sometimes at trial. The. Defense made efforts to show that Peterson was being framed by Dean and Moses. Frankly, Don, as I read each man's story while researching this case, Stephen Dean's version, to me, plays out like a poorly written murder with way too many coincidental details, such as, I turned around just in time to see the dog hit the wall, or I was in the back room stealing stuff and came out just in time to see Peterson stabbing him. It's like the typical whodunit, right? Like, I had no part in this whatsoever. See, that's why I said the second second version is more believable, but... Not to mention the whole watching TV and casually suggesting to steal from one neighbor while and possibly we'll, and murdering we'll kill him. him if we have to. And maybe we'll kill him too. And the fact yeah. that Dean also essentially claims Peterson was giving the orders. And let me ask you, uh, how often 
does an older male who is bigger, more and more popular, ever take orders from a younger, smaller guy? Let me tell you, the way testosterone works in the male hierarchy, especially at their age, it seems pretty damn unlikely. Way too much ego and testosterone there. Uh, good, good call out there. Yeah. Finally, if you're the police in this instance, do you really care who is more guilty so long as both men are ultimately found guilty? Do you think it really mattered to law enforcement and the district attorney which one of these killers got the stiffer sentence? Obviously, I can't say. As, as you all well know, this isn't Midwest math. But when I do the murder math on this one, shit doesn't add up to me. But I, I don't know if it's who's more guilty. It's who can, who, who can they prosecute? What kind of case can they prosecute? I think that's what it comes down to. It's not, as, it's not who's, who's more guilty. And, and I mean, just from my perspective. Dean and Moses had time to work on their story. And given that Dean was in possession of the stolen property and the blood was found at his house, he was by far in a worse position. I wasn't able to to confirm this last part, so please take this with a grain of salt. But one of the other rumors around St. Anthony High was that Moses had drugs on him when the initial arrest was made, which the cops quite possibly used against him. Either way, I thought Peterson's story sounded way more natural and realistic. What I believe, of course, is of little consequence. The question is, what did the jury think? Following the testimony, closing arguments, and instructions by the court, the jury retired to deliberate. On November 20th, 1998, after a day and a half of deliberations, the jury returned verdicts of not guilty of premeditated murder and murder in the first degree while committed, committing aggravated robbery, but guilty of murder in the first degree while committing burglary and murder in the second degree. Okay, hold on. The thirty-year sentence. Okay, so the, they're saying the, the, the he was not guilty of premeditated, premeditated murder, correct, and murder in the first degree yep. while committing ag- aggravated robbery. Okay, correct. He was also charged because they charge him with three counts of murder. Okay, but he was guilty of murder in the first degree while while committing, committing burger, burglary, yep. and then also murder in the second degree. It's a thirty-year sentence, life sentence. Okay. Okay. Peterson appealed the decision and made strong arguments that Moses was essentially allowed to reread his statement script was and was also coached by prosecutors. He argued insufficient evidence as well as abuse of discretion. Also following the verdicts, the county's attorney's office sent questionnaires to the jurors seeking their input on the trial. On December 1st, 1998, Peterson's Defense attorney received a type unsigned response to the questionnaire in an envelope with the last name and return address of juror KT. Among the jurors' comments on the questionnaire was the following statement, quote, I wanted more from the defense counsel in presenting the defense. I know a person is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, but in reality, it didn't work that way, end quote. The juror also stated that she did not believe the testimony of Dean or Moses, that she believed Ryan Peterson and wanted him to be not guilty, and she did not see him as a threat to society. Upon receiving the questionnaire responses, Peterson moved for a judgment of acquittal on the grounds that the verdicts were not sustained by the evidence or, in the alternative, a new trial or Schwartz hearing because of juror misconduct. Peterson's appeal also argued Moses was an accomplice, therefore his testimony should not have been allowed to corroborate Dean's. His appeals were denied by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Ryan Michael Peterson is still in prison to this day. Stephen Dean is now a family man. Whoa. And he he served some time, right? He got an eight-year minimum of a 25-year sentence. This was in 98. Oh, my gosh. So he would have been out in mid-2000s if, if they let him out on the after the eight or, sh- or shortly thereafter. Whoa. I, the coincidences in his story were troubling, the interior closeness of the group. But again, if you're, if you're prosecution, you're getting, you're getting both of them. You're getting both of them. Right. Did, uh, 
What does it matter if it's Dean or Peterson to them who's getting 30? One's getting 30, one's getting 25. I just don't I mean, see. I, I think they, I think they want to, they want to prosecute to the maximum level, I, I think would be the goal. Right. And they, they argued that Dean had already agreed to his sentence and had nothing to gain by testifying in court. It's because he already made it's the because game. He, because he already did it. <laughs> He's already he got already the game. He already got it. He's eight years, yeah, but, 25 year sentence, minimum of eight. So Sure, you can make that argument. He's got nothing to gain because he's already gained. He's already gained. Thank you. I couldn't. Believe, that was what the prosecutor said. Like, give me a break. So, so I don't know. When, when exactly did you make this deal? Did you make the deal and then say, "Hey, you can, uh, you'll have this amount of time, or we'll push for this if you testify." And again, we can always MMQB this stuff, I but I, I, I have to observe these things vocally for myself, for you, for our listeners. Because it is relevant. And, and when you break this down and you see what happened between these friends, you see an older man, a little more cunning, probably got coached by his family what to do a little bit. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to speculate a whole, whole bunch. But all, all of the guilt was at Stephen Dean's feet and he found a way to flip it around. He's got the stolen property. He's got the blood in his house. He's the one who paged Moses. Well, and... He's the one who had a, a negative history with the neighbor. And he that, put himself as the hero. Like, I was walking around with my socked hand, cleaning off all the fingerprints as what's-his-face was touching everything. Right. You know. It's all these weird little details like that, that again, they sound like the type of things a person would say when they're making up the story. They're going to make themselves look better. Well, right? and too, just in, too many coincidental details. Yeah. Too many yeah. coincidental details. Yeah. So. And there's a human being who literally had the life beat out of him. Yeah. So what does that do? I mean, what is that? Man, you make a deal and it's nothing. Sources for this episode of Midwest Murder, the U.S. Department of Justice, Bureau of Justice Statistics, Special Report, Seasonal Patterns in Criminal Victimization Trends, The Star Tribune, articles by Jim Adams and Joy Powell, State of Minnesota Court Documents and Appeals Documents, MN.gov, interview with Jason Foffler. The timeline, peopleofhistory.com. This episode of Midwest Murder is written by, was written by Jonah Lanto. It's produced at the Good Talk Network. You can find us wherever podcasts can be found. Hit us with those five-star reviews on iTunes and Spotify. Find Minimus Murder on Eventbrite for all of our live tour information. And yeah, we look forward to seeing you guys out there. Bye. Can't wait to see you. Bye.